As I said before, our text is in Romans today. We don't start at the beginning, but we skip ahead just a touch to Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, that faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Made right. This whole idea of us being made right includes our sins being forgiven, being brought into the kingdom of God as heirs of the inheritance, being made new and walk in a newness of life, being made right with God, and being made right with one another. Now in Romans, Paul digs deeply into this theological truth that apart from faith in Christ, there is no such thing as righteousness. It's only faith that makes us right with God. It's only faith that makes us right with God, but how? How does that happen? Two weeks ago, we talked about the right spirit, and then last week, we talked about the right mission, and this week, we talk about the right promise. So a little bit of textual context, because we started in chapter four. I'm going to fast forward you through chapters one through three. Don't worry, we're going to come back and get those later this summer. The chapters leading up to this is all about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is all-consuming judgment against sin. No one is righteous. And God's righteousness is judgmental on all the unrighteousness in this world against all of us who are judgmental. And the conclusion that Paul writes right before this text is that there is no one who is righteous All are under sin, and God's condemnation is righteous and true. But then our text today takes a bit of a turn, and it introduces us or reintroduces us to Abraham, the father who who the father of all who believe in the right promise of God. And it's a promise that makes everything right. Just a little bit of Abraham refresher. God comes to Abraham in his home with all of his family, and he says, I want you to move. Where? Well, I'll tell you when you get there. And so he does, and and then 
he gets this promise from God that, that someday his descendants will be as many as the sands on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham is so excited, but years and decades go by. And it's not until he's over 100 years old when three angels appear to him, and one of those, the angel of the Lord, says, within a year you will bear a son. Well, sure enough, he, he bears his son Isaac, and he's overjoyed. This promise has started for, for God to make this expansive family. And the first thing that God does next is says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And faithfully, Abraham follows. And he takes his son up the mountain in preparation to be obedient to the father. And in the last moment, the father comes in, saves the day, provides a lamb instead of his son Isaac. So his son Isaac grows up to be a fine young man who, who is the father of Jacob, who then has, has Joseph and, and 12 brothers. And Joseph is sold off into slavery, into Egypt, and works his way up into a place of prominence next, right next to Pharaoh, and huge famine hits the land. And in the midst of this famine, Jake, uh, uh, what's his name? Thank you. The guy with the coat. <laughs> Joseph reconnects, would not be here without you. Uh, Joseph reconnects with his 12 brothers because of this famine, and the country of Israel is born and grows. Struggles in slavery for 400 years until God sends Moses to set his people free. There's Abraham, the father of nations. But was Abraham really righteous, like Paul says he was? Abraham is, is a guy just like, like you and me, and he made constant mistakes. In fact, this one time, he came to this king, his name was Abimelech, and Abimelech, he was so afraid of Abimelech because his wife Sarah was so beautiful that surely Abimelech would kill Abraham so that he could have Sarah to be his wife. And so, thinking outside of his mind, he, te he tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister so that he can save his own life. So he was less than righteous from a worldly perspective. But still it's not his behavior or his good work-making abilities that was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith. And Paul tells us that the law brings wrath. The wrath of God is not something we spend a great deal of time talking about in the Lutheran church, so I'm just going to give us a crash course in it. The gospel writer John has a lot to say, and I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes. First, from John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And he gives us a, a greater description of what that wrath of God looks like in Revelation 14. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... He will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Here's what it looks like. Poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. The wrath of God is very real. But it doesn't exist for those of us who stand in the shadow of the cross, for there where Christ bore our sin, the wrath of God was poured out in full. 
that whenever we stand in the shadow of the cross, we are standing someplace safe because the wrath of God has already burned there and it has no more sin to consume. And let's not fall into the trap of thinking that God somehow uses his wrath to punish humanity. Right? It'd, be, it'd be foolish to say that, that God allows this storm to happen over this particular city because it's so bad. That's not how God's wrath works anymore. In fact, God is patient and he stores that wrath up until the last day. See, we are, apart from faith, hopeless. There's not a chance that any one of us could redeem or save ourselves. We are in desperate need of salvation, of a rescuer to come in and save the day. And we'd be lost forever unless rescued from sin, death, and the power of Satan. So then the next big question is this, how are we saved? How can we be saved? Well, Paul says we become heirs to the kingdom of God, the world put right. And this is more than just simply hanging on in this life until we somehow escape into heaven. There's more to salvation to that. We are saved right now. We are saved eternally right now for a life of freedom, joy, sacrifice, and renewal. This happened the very first moment the Holy Spirit planted faith in us and grew it and continues to grow it today. We become heirs and recipients of the inheritance. Now, from an earthly perspective, we receive inheritance sometimes when our, our parents pass away if they haven't frivolously spent it on themselves, going on vacations and buying expensive things. Like it's ours to begin with. But we receive those when they pass on. Except in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the world put right, it looks like our forgiveness, our salvation, our everlasting life, our eternity with God, free from sin, in a world with all its problems reversed and made right again. That's the inheritance that we get. And and we do have a generous God, right? Because he longs for all the world to be saved. And so he's, he's, he's spreading this gospel through the Great Commission, through our hands and feet. So we are spending frivolously the Father's inheritance. But here's the cool thing. The more we share, it's not like we get less. There's more than enough to go around. When our God is so generous to pour out that inheritance onto the world, we still get the full amount. It never shrinks because he's so gracious and generous. We receive it in full. So this is salvation. So how are we saved? I'm going to give you two wrong answers and one right one. The first wrong answer, and I hear this so many times, and there's probably some people in this room today who who believe this is what it takes to go to heaven. I try my best to live like a good Christian. I try really hard. I really want the good that I do to outweigh the bad that I've ever done. But Paul says this, for, it's, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if, then, full, then faith is null and the promise is void. And what Paul is saying is this, if, if being an heir is the result of perfectly keeping the law, then not only is there no need for faith in the promise that God will make you right through the obedience of Jesus, There's no need for Jesus. And his sacrifice was meaningless. And 
from an accounting standpoint, if you think of your life as a ledger with your, your mistakes being the debits that are written in red and the good things that you do, the credits to your account that are written in black, then the goal of this first mistake would be obviously to end the day in the black. Except, apart from faith, no good deed is ever judged a good work by God, apart from faith. Even more than that, James teaches that if we break just the smallest, tiniest commandment, we are guilty of breaking all of them. We're guilty of them all. And in Romans chapter 3, right before this text, Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, the truth is, every single one of us, our ledger is filled with red ink. And each one of us worthy of the wrath of God. It's the wrong answer. I try to be a good person. I'm going to give you the second wrong answer. And this one may surprise some of you. Second wrong answer is, I believe God with all my heart. And here's why this is wrong. You can have lots and lots of faith that God exists. You can believe that he is loving, believe that he is holy. You can believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. You can show great reverence for God. You can come to church every single week. You can have multiple Bible studies within your week. You can, you can look like a great Christian. Yet all the while seeking to be your own savior and justifier by trusting in your performance of how you do religion. The hoops you go through, the steps you take, checks off the box of your religious life. But this still results in wondering if you've done enough. If you've done enough. And get this. James, in chapter 2 of his book, says this. You believe that God is one, you, you do well, he says. But here's the, here's the clincher. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. See, belief in God does not save. Now, in the 930 service, when I preached this, I said, let's just stop here, and we can have the right answer next week, cliffhanger style. But I'm not going to do that. Here's the right answer. The right answer is the right promise, that faith is counted for you as righteousness. Faith is counted as righteousness. See, Abraham, he has nothing to boast about in his life. And Paul teaches that the faith that Abraham had in trusting his promise to make him the father of many nations, that faith, that was credited to him, counted as righteousness. It's an accounting term. To credit something means that you convey a status to something that's brand new. Let me put it this way. If you are renting to own a home, well, you have a rent-to-own option with a house, and you make payments. And let's say you make payments for five years renting this house, but in the end of those five years, you decide, you know what, I really like this house. I think I'd, I'd like to buy this house. Then you don't start buying it from that day. You go back five years to all those rental payments that you've made, and those rental payments are now considered, they are credited as, they are counted as mortgage payments. 
the term just changed. The meaning and the function just changed. And that's what God does with Abraham's faith. See, it's not, it's not that faith as a work that we do saves us. It's not that God gives us this gift of faith and then somehow now we have the ability to be better people and that saves us. And so we have faith in the right promise. When you have faith in the right promise, God looks at you and goes, that faith that you have in my promise to save and redeem you, that faith I'm going to consider being now righteousness. You're not righteous, but I'm going to consider you so because of your faith. But then how can we have this faith like Abraham that God would look at us, you and I today, and say, Tig, I consider your faith in the right promise I'm going to count that as righteousness today. Paul gives us three really good things to look at, different aspects of Abraham's faith. The first one is this. In hope, he believed against hope. (laughs) In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. To to have hope and believe against hope means that you believe the radical promise of God even if everything the world tells you says otherwise. When every circumstance seems like the promise that God has made to you seems impossible, that is to believe in a hope against hope. See, we have a hope that believes against hope that Jesus has received all of God's wrath for our sin and consumed it in full. We believe in a hope against hope that we are forgiven and set free. We believe in a hope against hope that the Holy Spirit will empower our mission to make more disciples. We believe in a hope against hope that Jesus will indeed return and turn this entire mess of a world right side up. Undo all that's wrong. Remove sin from our lives forever and live with us in peace and joy. His faith was not righteousness, but God counts it as if it was. So in hope, he believed against hope. The second thing that that we hear Paul teach us about Abraham's faith is this. He did not weaken in faith when the odds were stacked against him. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You see, in the face of hopelessness, Courageously and boldly stands faith, a faith that rejects hopelessness and clings to the true hope that's only found in Christ, a hope that knows that even if we can't explain how it will happen, we know that it will, we know that it will. He believed in a hope against hope. He didn't let worldly circumstances weaken his faith. And the third thing, he grew strong in faith to be fully convinced in the promise of God. Paul says, no unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, there are so many things that the world and the enemy try to throw at us to to weaken our faith, but the Holy Spirit enables those moments that are difficult and trying to strengthen us, to strengthen our resolve to be more bold in our confidence in God, to keep his promises. Those three, 
Believe in a hope against hope. Don't let this world weaken you, but instead let it make you stronger in your faith. Now, that's now one thing to say, okay, these are great things, Pastor Tig. I'm going to do that. I'm going I'm to go home and I'm going to do those three things. And I'm going to be just like Abraham so that God will look at me and goes, he'll just say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're even better than Abraham. I'm going to credit that to you as super righteousness. Except we can't even do these three things on our own. Unless we're empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit to do so. And so as we say this almost every single week, we need more. We need more of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we get that is through his word, through his sacraments, through fellowship and Bible study with one another, growing together. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit enables those three things to happen in our lives. And then the faith that we have, that we cling to against all odds, that's the answer to how are we saved. That faith, God says, I'm going to treat that faith like the righteousness of Christ. You all are perfectly righteous today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a God who delivers to us the right promise. But that right promise makes us right with you and with one another. Help us cling to those promises of of everlasting life, forgiveness, a newness of life that we have eternally with you. Help us cling to that no matter what this world says. Help us be bold in our witness to one another. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.